I basically started picking up books and I started reading about other applications, more sophisticated applications, which which then helped me, you know, extend my expertise and so forth. And so, you know, that's kind of how I fell into it. Um, it was was never really recruited, um, you know, by Silicon Valley. It was always, you know, more the more traditional big, you know, kind of consulting firms, you know, that had uh, large clients out there because that was that was definitely the demand because all these Fortune 500 companies had to figure out, you know, what your what was your Y2K strategy, you know, how how can you prevent the clocks from from basically flipping instead of to 2000 flipping back to 1900 uh, and things of that nature. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Catching Knives podcast, where we talk about contrarian investment strategies. Today, I have Christian Mack. Man, I'm super excited about this interview. He has has taken the uh, startup business, building it from the late 90s, early 2000s to a nine-figure exit. He is one of the OG guys that started out of his house having 14 people working 24 hours a day, you know, kind of hot cotting, rotating through, working out of the basement, sleeping uh, on the, the road trip between jobs, and then really making every trial and error mistake that you could possibly make in starting a, a business. Now he's grown that into a fund that has had over 30 exits for people that are doing enterprise software. It is mind blowing. There's some little nuggets in there about how he's given back, how he's connected with mentors, masterminds, and without giving everything up in this preview, I just want you to listen in there are some of these key things that he has learned about spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to attorneys that then layered him into building a family office and this legacy investment strategy that is applicable to everyone looking to invest today. Welcome to Catching Knives. Hey, everyone. Man, I am super excited today because I get to interview uh, a friend of mine, Christian Mack. Uh, So Christian is someone I've met. It's probably been a year, maybe two years now uh, that we got a chance. We, We are part of a mastermind group together and sitting down hearing, you know, a little bit of your story I hope that it doesn't, um, you know, put too much light on it, but you kind of come in as this very kind of unassuming, but you're, you're like an assassin. Like you are such a, a, a high level ninja financial person that when I sat down and started hearing your, your story, I was completely enthralled. Uh, and just the way that you think about that. And so Maybe, you know, what I can do is I'll give you as far as your background that I've heard and interpreted it and then allow you to kind of take that from that level and then go a little bit deeper um, if that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Jake, thank you again for having me. No problem. So like I, I, people like Christian is like 
I don't say Rain Man, but I was like, you know, uh, he's, he's you, don't, you don't want me going to a casino. I guarantee you that. <laughs> I was like count cards, like you know, doing all of these things, and uh, to me, venture capital investing is kind of like gambling in most cases. And so, like when people say, "Oh, I do venture capital, I invest into companies," I kind of like a little suspect already. But then to hear Christian actually explain some of these things, I was just like, wow, that's smart. That's really, really clever the way that he approaches it. So, and I think that comes from your background. You, you travel around a lot. Your dad was a uh, missionary church planter, you know, kind of call it the, an entrepreneur for, for Christ, so to speak. Um, so you traveled a lot, but then your f- formal education was University of Chicago, mathematics, So for people that don't know, University of Chicago is like a a wicked hard, you know, economics, mathematics, very difficult university to get into. And the fact that uh, he did that uh, shows to a certain level of chops. And so when he mentioned that, I was kind of already like, wait, that's hard to get into. Um, So, you know, super interesting there. You got into IT late 90s. And then you kind of grew that. You started a software company. You then sold that for, you know, millions, hundreds of millions, lots of, you know, multiples of what you've grown that company over time. And now you've taken that money and started investing at kind of VC, venture capital kind of thing. Can you take that, what I've given as far as a little bit of your background, and then say, of those, you know, how'd you get started in IT that wasn't just... Uh, your ability to kind of spell IT. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, gosh. Um, so, I, yes, when I went to University of Chicago, I was actually on my way to get a PhD in mathematics. Realized very quickly, it was a very humbling experience, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a great school. Uh, but quite frankly, if, if you don't want to go into academia, especially with math, you know, it's not that's something that uh, is for the faint of heart. So, But ironically, I put myself through school by taking on uh, the odd IT job, and also through student loans. And, you know, so I was working, was basically, I was working full time. I was a, as a teacher's assistant. I graded papers uh, and I went to school full time and uh, all at the same time. And, uh, you know, even despite all that, uh, as I was turning uh, into my senior year, I realized that uh, I had, you know, six figures of student loan debt, you know, that was kind of assigned to me. So uh, regardless of best efforts and, and that was a lot. Uh, and at the time, you know, it was 1998. At the time, I had the opportunity to continue on with uh, my PhD, uh, actually in Caltech. Uh, but instead of doing that, uh, I decided uh, well, I was getting all these getting all these recruiters calling calling uh, calling my home phone. And this is you know, back in the days where cell phones were were, were still somewhat unique. Um, you know, my pager would go off because uh, you know I was still working full time, and so I get paid from time to time. And uh, anyway. I don't know how these recruiters got my information, but regardless, uh, it was very interesting to me to see the demand uh, that was back there in, in IT because I'd always loved computers. Uh, ironically, if I had to, to do it over again, I probably would have been a comp sci major versus a math major because I, I uh, you know, as a kid, I would just put together computers, uh, you know, quite selfishly so that I could play video games. <laughs> so, well, so that was kind of fun. Um, and I would mow lawns and I would shovel snow and all that stuff to, to actually accomplish that. Um, but regardless, uh, as I as I uh, went to my senior year, you know, I was getting some pretty significant job offers. You know, six figures uh, back in '98 uh, was, uh, you know, uh, still is uh, a very significant amount of money, especially for someone who's recently college grad. So I did that, and then I realized very quickly uh, that that you know I didn't necessarily like um, you know being a W two employee just because I was an enterprise IT consultant, and it was the work was interesting, uh, but the politics just weren't something that uh, I was terribly interested in. And so, um, you know, I decided to, and it was all enterprise IT consulting. So we were doing very large projects, very complicated projects to Fortune 500 companies, which was a great experience. You know, but ultimately speaking, as I like to joke around, there's only so much billable time in the day. And I was seeing a situation where, quite frankly, back in those days, um, you know, they were taking uh, kids that were right out of college, like myself, and they were billing them out for like 300 bucks an hour, uh, 400 bucks an hour. And a lot of the folks uh, didn't necessarily know what they were doing. It was kind of on the job training. Uh, but again, there were just, you know, there was a situation where everyone thought the world was going to fall apart due to Y2K. There, there was this pent up demand. Um, and so, 
you know, I just kind of happened to fall into that uh, just because I like to, to play computer games. <laughs> so, and so uh, uh, anyway, a long story short, at that point, decided to start a software company and so because I started to see see a repeated project come up over and over again. It was really a project around automation. Um, and so there were lots of situations uh, in businesses back in those days, cable companies, financial services companies, where if you had an issue, you had to call somebody up. And you, you physically, you have not physically, but either physically or over the phone, you would need to, you know, talk to a person and try to describe, you know, what, you know, who you were, you know, verify a bunch of information. And then that information would be escalated to a level two person and, and so forth and so on. And, and I remember sitting on the phone with uh, a, uh, you know, a tier one uh, cable provider uh, who shall not be named uh, for, I think it was like five hours. <laughs> you know? And it was just like, this is, this is crazy, you know, as a, as a consumer. And so I thought, well, you know, there's an opportunity here to really create a software product because, again, there's only so much billable time in the day. But software is something where if you create something that's commercially off the shelf, avail- off the shelf available, uh, then it's something that's very, very scalable. And so we actually started uh, Resolve um, back in uh, 1999. Uh, I actually, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny story, but uh, started and called to a bunch of people, actually called my parents first and said, hey, this may not work because I actually did this because I read Robert Kiyosaki's book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I got really inspired because I was just, I felt like I was beating my head against the wall going, look, I'm making six figures, but unfortunately after taxes and so forth, you know, I'm going to be like 60 years old by the time I pay off my student loans. And that just didn't seem to to reconcile with me very well. And so I said, you know, what, what can I do? I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, I said, you know, I need to become a business owner. You know, what can I do? And, you know, while real estate seemed very interesting, I had absolutely no background in real estate, but I did have a background in IT. So I felt like, well, why don't I just start a business? So I called up my parents and I said, look, I'm probably going to fail. Um, and so if I do fail, can I move back in? <laughs> uh, which they said, um, absolutely. Um, after a long pause, of course. Um, but uh, uh, and then um, at that point, um, you know, called up a bunch of people that I thought could I could train up uh, in this world because back then, there weren't too many people that really knew much about, you know, technology, you know, that weren't really trained on operating systems, applications. It was, you know, not even at University of Chicago, computer science wasn't even a major or a minor. It, it was kind of like an elective course, believe it or not. And there was a bunch of elective courses, but it wasn't really something that I think people thought would really catch on. And so, and so I actually, uh, you know, uh, at that point I had, a, you know, just purchased my first, uh, my, my house. It was a four bedroom, two and a half bath house in, uh, in Chicago. And I called up a bunch of people and I said, hey, I don't know if I can, I can't really pay market, but, you know, I think I can give you room and board and pay you something, you know, would you, would you, you know, kind of sign up to this crazy initiative? And they did. And we had 13 people living in a two and a uh, four bedroom, two and a half bath house for about a year. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, it was, it was crazy days, right? Uh, it was working seven days a week. Um, you know, I'd, I'd uh, you know, I'd show up uh, at the client at four or five o'clock in the morning. I would work, you know, 12 hours, uh, you know, 13 hours, 14 hours, I get home and I would basically go into the basement uh, where we had uh, carpeted the basement. We had put up whiteboards where there's supposed to be drywalls and put six desks down there. And all of us would just work around the clock. Um, Saturdays, we work around the clock. You know, Sundays were actually recruiting days. So we would actually, we'd actually put a barbecue together and, and try to recruit, um, you know, some other crazy folks uh, to, uh, to join, to join the initiative and so forth. And we did that. And within the first year, you know, we actually had uh, exceeded expectations. We had we had uh, closed uh, over well over a million dollars in revenue, uh, which was uh, pretty pretty fantastic. We weren't expecting uh, to be uh, to be as successful as we were. And you know, again, it started out in services, but we started working on the software too. And that you know basically led to two two and a half million in revenue the second year, and it just kept on going up and up and up. And ultimately, resolved. You know, uh, you know, it's still around today. Um, you know, uh, you know when I when I kind of left it, it was, it was, uh, you know, uh, you know, went from zero to basically 50 million in revenue. And, but we did it all the hard way. We didn't take on, you know, I didn't have any mentors, you know, I didn't, you know, I, uh, then we didn't take on any investment capital. It was all kind of organic growth. And so, um, and so we did that. Then we transitioned from services in the software and the software was, was, uh, typically sold to telecommunications, financial service companies, uh, and the department of defense. And we actually, you know, did really well during the dot-com implosion um, and the Great Recession. What a lot of people don't understand is certain segments within enterprise software do extremely well during downturns. And that's because Fortune 500 companies have to figure out how to deliver the same service or product uh, with with more efficiency, right? Because usually a lot of times, you know, there's less people that uh, they can, you know, keep on board. You know, or, for instance, in the COVID situation, right? 
everyone's working remote. So how do you, how do you provide that, you know, with, with all these additional complexities and, and limited resources? And so these segments do well in those cases because Fortune 500 companies turn to, um, you know, you know, segments, enterprise software segments like automation, collaboration, you know, companies like Zoom, for instance, to really drive those efficiencies. When I say enterprise software, uh, just to, you know, just to define that, I really mean software that is business to business. So you're, you're, you know, big, big companies uh, that people would recognize would be like SAP, right? Um, Salesforce, uh, IBM, Oracle. Uh, these are, these are big companies, but believe it or not, there's a lot of smaller companies out there uh, that, uh, you know, that really provide a tremendous amount of value uh, to the space. Uh, so the Great Recession hit. And actually, we grew like crazy uh, during that time, uh, so much so that we ultimately uh, sold uh, in 2012 and had a successful uh, had a successful exit. Um, you know, uh, ultimately was uh, you know nine figures, which was which was great. And then you know I decided to take uh, to you know that was kind of my going to you know effectively retire. Uh, I think that stuck for about three minutes because uh, uh, you know as as much as I I do like golf, um, you know I I I can't be out there. Uh, for four or five hours, it drives me a little batty, and I'm not very good at it, so, <laughs> even though I love it. Um, and so I decided, you know, what the heck should I do now? And so I actually started a family office at that point to to effectively look at investing, you know, our, the capital that we had generated, you know, into other different kind of assets, asset classes uh, directly. And so we did that. And then in 2014, you know, because I started to interact with other family offices, other people that had had, you know, you know, similar bigger exits. And they were looking to to invest too. A lot of the times, people would say, "Hey, you know, I made my money in commercial real estate. You know, Christian, you know, I found this technology deal. Would you look at this?" And I would joke around and I would say, "Well, I think you'd have uh, you know better odds of going to Vegas than you would actually getting your money back on this deal because a lot of this stuff was pre revenue." Jake, to your point, you know, it was venture capital, right? Oh, this is going to be the next, you know, Yahoo or whatever, next unicorn. And I was always a big believer that you know, while I'm a big advocate um, in small small, medium-sized businesses, uh, especially those that can get above a million dollars a year in, in specifically in enterprise software, uh, that, you know, if you're going to invest in something pre-revenue or whatever, that's a real big gamble. There's a lot of other great companies out there that, that really, you know, like myself, right, kind of, ha- you know, just started, you know, by, you know, happenstance and ultimately speaking needed um, that guidance uh, to really kind of grow up, you know, but had for whatever reason hit kind of a glass ceiling. And so kind of that aha moment um, started where I realized, well, why don't we create a fund where, you know, people aren't just kind of, you know, you know, uh, you know, interacting, family offices aren't just interacting with one another and syndicating, you know, different types of deals. You know, this is, you know, a, a, a very specific strategy uh, around something that I know very well. And so what I did is I actually took two years, I wrote a 300 page methodology that said, hey, depending on certain sizes of companies, uh, you're going to hit certain resistance points. Uh, and at that point, you're going to really need kind of best practices uh, to be implemented in basically what we call value add here in order to punch through uh, those resistance points. And, you know, in my experience in enterprise software, you have resistance points at the first million, then it's two and a half million, then it's five, then it's 10, you know, then it's 20, and then it actually goes up to 50. And I know this really well because it wasn't like, you know, our business went from zero to 50 million. You know, it wasn't this hockey stick, right? It would go up for a while, then it would come down. Then it would go up. It was kind of a roller coaster ride uh, of sorts. And so, you know, kind of learn things, you know, certainly uh, the hard way. But we wrote this, wrote this great methodology that became the investment thesis around uh, what is Lotus today, uh, which uh, we're on our third fund. Uh, but our whole strategy was let's find these dusty assets, these assets that have hit a plateau. Um, that are too big for venture capital because traditional venture capital, they're looking for opportunities where it's like straight, you know, straight up north. Right? It's not just a hockey stick, right? It's almost like, you know, you know, you know, grow at any cost. Again, not, not something that I believe in personally. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of these companies are too small for traditional private equity companies. And what do I mean by that? Well, believe it or not, in the, at least in the enterprise software space, you have to be a certain size, you know, before a, a traditional private equity company will actually buy you. And that's primarily because, you know, they, you know, private equity folks are, are filled with, um, you know, a lot of folks that, you know, work on Wall Street, right? They work at Goldman Sachs, they work at Merrill Lynch, and then they go out and they start their own fund and they bring with them a, you know, the backing behind uh, the, the bank that they used to work with. In addition to that, they bring with them a, a client list uh, and they, they open up a strategy and they'll invest in different things, you know, whether it be, you know, fixed income, real estate, what have you. But a lot of those folks have financial engineering background. They don't necessarily, they don't have operator background. And of course, 
my background and our background as a team here um, is mostly filled with, you know, folks that have had successful exits. So they have been operators, they have grown companies from scratch, and they have had multiple exits. Um, in fact, over 30 exits, uh, you know, the team here has had uh, to date. And so, uh, you know, bringing to bear all of those folks, in addition to those financial services, or those financial services uh, experts as well on our team, you know, we, I thought, well, there's, there's a perfect opportunity where we can take these assets, we can implement our best practices, right? And we, we do take, take control uh, because, God forbid, the founder gets hit by a bus. But quite frankly, the founder usually is, is more of a technologist uh, anyway. So they really want to focus on the product strategy, which is in the equivalent of real estate. You know, location is everything in real estate. Well, in the enterprise software realm, the product is everything. So if we, if we can underwrite and make sure that that product is very, very you know, valuable uh, to the marketplace, then it's really just a matter of fixing the back office, implementing our value add the back office, front office, and bringing a CEO that has been through uh, that uh, you know those successful exits uh, in that space. And uh, Fund One did extremely well, you know, uh, 2.3 times return in three years. Fund Two did uh, 42% uh, IRR, 36.5% uh, net IRR in in four years. Uh, and um, uh, let's see, uh, Fund Three just started up, uh, you know, late last year, and we're kind of off to the races, but. Uh, Anyway, that's uh, kind of uh, my story and, and how I kind of fell into uh, some of this stuff. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. So that's, that's uh, like I said, people like, you know, may, maybe for me, uh, you know, individually, I geek out on this stuff. But I had a couple questions that, that came up during that time period. You said that you were getting recruited while at the University of Chicago or maybe just leaving in what you know, kind of your IT tech experience. How did you land on enterprise software? Was it something that recruiter pitched that? Did it just, you know, you know, how did you first land in that place? So a lot of the systems that I had been working on, believe it or not, were already enterprise software. So big universities like University of Chicago, you know, they're filled with enterprise software um, applications. And so the reason why I think uh, I was specifically targeted so much uh, from recruiters is because, you know, I had had that experience. And ironically, I actually started my first full-time, you know, outside of school um, job a month ahead of when I was supposed to graduate. So during that month, I was, I literally would, I would actually start with third shift. So I I would actually do consulting. And again, I know this sounds crazy, but back in the 90s, everyone was so worried about uh, Y2K uh, that uh, they literally had three shifts. Um, And so I was brought on board a month before I graduated. And I remember during that time, I actually, the only way I slept was in the car going back and forth through work, uh, Monday through Friday, and then on the weekends, uh, because I would go to school, I would still do my W2 job, do my TA job, grade papers, and then I would go to work at night. (laughs) And so, and so, uh, and so, you know, but what was funny was that at night, you know, I thought that, uh, you know, being a W2 employee was going to be really, you know, really complicated, especially as a consultant and so forth. but Quite frankly, uh, it was because I had all that experience. It was a lot easier for me than a lot of other folks uh, to to pick up, you know, kind of what the role and responsibility was. So, which was great for me because then, you know, effectively because of a third shift and there was not much going around going on. Um, well, hopefully, 
sometimes there was some stuff that went down, which was always an emergency. Uh, then I, I basically started picking up books and I started reading about other applications, more sophisticated applications, which which then helped me, you know, extend my expertise and so forth. And so, you know, that's kind of how I fell into it. Um, it was was never really recruited, um, you know, by Silicon Valley. It was always, you know, more the more traditional big, you know, kind of consulting firms, you know, that had uh, large clients out there because that was. That was definitely the demand because all these Fortune 500 companies had to figure out, you know, what your what was your Y2K strategy? You know, how how can you prevent the clocks from from basically flipping instead of to 2000, flipping back to 1900, uh, and things of that nature. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I it was kind of like the internet was starting at that that era. I was, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, in college, call it, you know, 99, and I remember even being kind of same thing. It might've been 96, you know, I wanted to sign up for fantasy football and I had to go like ask for an email. And I was like, I was like, Hey, this thing's asking for an email. Like, I don't have an email. Like, how do I get that? Oh but, yeah. You know, it was like, yeah, I, I thought, I thought who's ever going to use this stuff other than academics, but you know, it's kind of a cool system to send mail. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I wanted to find out what an email so I could sign up for fantasy football. Cause I really liked that when I was, uh, you know, uh, a senior in high school. So you mentioned rich dad, poor dad was like one of those like aha light bulb moments for me. It's same thing. Like I was in the army when somebody gave me that and I was trying to like figure out what I was going to do when I grew up and kind of get, once I got out of the army and I read and I was just like, wow, this like, and, and it's not like it's, you know, super technical, but it's just like, you know, well, Jake, back back in those days, you may recall, like there was nothing like that on. I mean, I mean, absolutely nothing in the you know bookstores. Not that there's bookstores today, but I mean, you know, you go to the bookstore and there was nothing like that uh, out there. Um, and yeah, I, it, I think it's you know Robert Kiyosaki certainly changed my life uh, for sure. And the way that 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 it is, you know, articulated in there really helps. Like even someone like myself that didn't go into real estate, right? Um, you know, and. And I was just like, you know, but I was able to leverage my skill set because of the the concepts that were abstracted out of that. So it was it was great. I, I and I was all in, right? Ever since I bought, bought you know, uh, read that book and read it multiple times, right? I bought every freaking book. <laughs> I that board. I bought the cash flow games. I played it, you know, all with like kids, with neighbors, I mean, everyone, right? So uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a good uh, good experience. So, you know, obviously I went into the, uh, the real estate version of that and, then you know, I've, you know, done private equity real estate and kind of grew up from flipping a few houses to, to larger scale, working within a family office. Um, you mentioned, uh, you, you had a family office, you were going to retire, you had this nine figure kind of exit. So for the people that don't know, can you maybe kind of expand as far as what you mean by what is a family office and you're cl clubbing that together. And then I'm going to take that back in, in a second after that. Yeah. So when you do have a liquidity event, uh, you know, really the two options are, you know, the traditional option is that you, if you effectively hire somebody else to manage that money, right? So, you know, the Goldman Sachs, the Merrill Lynch's, the JP Morgan's of the world. And, you know, they do, they do a great job, but they do the job, you know, for a fee, right? So whether it's a percentage of assets under management, you know, or whether it's, you know, whatever other construct uh, they have, you know, that's how they get paid, right? So, you know, I felt like, you know, again, you know, I think those are great institutions. Um, you know, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of good people, you know, there, but at the, at the end of the day, and again, I'm a math major, right? It, it seemed to be conflicted, right? Uh, you know, like, like I wanted to be able, I wanted to have a system by which would would invest the capital that that we worked so hard on, right, and and do it in a way that was methodical, that was that was aligned with interest. So, this this concept of a family office has been around for you know for you know hundreds of years, uh, quite frankly, you know, but just recently has kind of caught on, I think, um, in in kind of more public domain. And what that, you know, and again, if you look up uh, the, you know, the ISO standards and all that stuff, right, there is no definition of a family office, right? But, so I'll, but I'll give you my version of it, right? Uh, it is when, you know, you decide that you don't want to necessarily, you know, have a third party manage your money, uh, that you instead want to hire people uh, to invest that money uh, as you see fit, you know, depending on your investment thesis internally, right? So, and again, you might have a shared resource, um, you know, here and there. Uh, but the whole goal is that you hire people 
And, you know, they, their whole goal is to diversify your assets um, in, into, into a portfolio uh, directly into deals. Um, that's, you know, whether it, you know, again, they may still buy public equities, they may still, you know, buy public REITs and so forth. But a lot of times the, the alpha, uh, I mean, the, the upside, right, uh, is, is there in more private deals, especially when you're dealing with, you know, you know, folks like, and Jake mentioned it before, right? We're in a great masterminding community. And, you know, there's deals flying across all the time, right? There's deals flying across family office to family office. And so in order to kind of underwrite that deal, like you're not going to call Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and say, oh, by the way, would you mind, you know, underwriting, you know, the deal that Jake's got? Like they're not going to do that, right? But if you have your own team, you know, they can do that and they can do that in a very scalable way. So in my definition, if, if you get to a point where you can afford, you know, to hire people and the returns on those investments more than pay for, you know, the staff that you have on board, again, whether it's full time or fractional, uh, then then you have a family office and and you can do this with as little as $10 million, believe it or not. And then, but really at the same time, it probably doesn't make sense until you're probably at 20 million or, or above, um, you know, and, and, you know, there's family offices that uh, they are quite a bit bigger uh, than that. So, so that's what I mean by a family office. Yeah, sure. That's uh, helpful. Uh, it was kind of the same thing. I didn't really know what they were. You know, I worked for a high net worth, a rich guy is what I used to call it. You know, like, hey, there's a rich guy and he's investing money. And so I worked for a rich guy that sold his company for three, four hundred million dollars. And then he was deploying capital and I kind of was a cog in that machine. It wasn't until I started speaking at some of these things, like you said, five, six, eight years ago at family offices, it was the actual definition of like, Cause you like, you, like you said, you kind of Google it and be like, what is this? Like it doesn't even really exist. And so now it becomes such common, uh, you know, language. We were talking earlier about how trial and error is a very effective teacher, but probably the worst, uh, teacher of there, because you actually have to go make those mistakes. You as an operator have probably stepped in a most or if not all the holes as, as an operator kind of company. So um, I wanted to take that is like, when did you get a mentor? And then how has that like changed your, your life uh, or the trajectory or whatever you've been when doing? And then, you know, what, what does mentorship or being a, having mentors now when you've already had now this nine figure kind of exit look like, or do you still have them? Oh Yeah. Uh, so I did every, as Jake, as you mentioned, right? I did everything the hard way, right? So I hit every freaking pothole, I think, known to man uh, along the way. Uh, that's why it was such a roller coaster ride. And that's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to start a fund, uh, because I wanted to actually mentor, you know, other folks, you know, that were having similar challenges that for whatever reason just were, you, you were stuck. Um, but actually, uh, believe it or not, as, as we were going to sell the company, I had so, I was doing a lot of estate planning. And back then, back in 2010, 2011, there was, there wasn't, you know, and, and to some degree, this is, this is less true today than it was back then, but there was no like go to, Hey, I'm about to have a nine figure exit, you know, law firm come to, come to me. I'll show you how to structure everything efficiently. Right. There, there was, there was nothing like that. So what ultimately happened was um, I spent uh, probably around the, the, the course about $250,000, believe it or not, between six law firms. And uh, I think it was like 2010, uh, 2011, because I knew I was, I knew there was something that was about to happen. I didn't know exactly what, you know, but I, I, I figured, hey, let's, let's take the opportunity here. You know, we had built this company where we had, you know, lots of employees, you know, you know, hundreds of employees. And, um, you know, and so honestly, my day job was uh, was not as intense, nearly as intense as it is today. Uh, but I love what I do, so that's okay. But uh, but I was able to have time uh, to set aside to to really figure out what the state I, I you know really need to kind of put together. But it required six law firms, and ironically, I had actually you know out uh, done or you know, basically outpopulated my conference room that I had because I had so many lawyers in a conference room because there would be one guy that really knew you know about dynasty trust, and this guy really knew about you know, uh, you know, you know, accounting law and in tax law and, and so forth. And so uh, one of the one of the folks actually said, oh, I know this gentleman, you know, and uh, he is, um, you know, he, he actually is the chairman uh, of a, uh, a great bank um, in Southern California. And he's got a really great conference room. And so so I went to that conference room and, and he popped in for all of five minutes. And he's probably the smartest person I, I've ever met um, in my life. And I said, huh. 
that's really interesting. I, I wonder if he, uh, you know, wouldn't mind me taking him out to lunch. And uh, not only did he answer my my email right away, uh, but uh, he paid for lunch, and that started, you know, basically what has still today been uh, one of the best mentoring uh, experiences ever. And that was that was the first mentor I took on, and I would call him more of a personal mentor, which then kind of beckoned uh, the desire to say, well, maybe there's something into in this uh, mentorship, uh, you know, type of approach. And so, you know, since then, you know, I, I've added uh, three other, you know, mentors, you know, folks that understand family office, folks that understand private equity, you know, folks that just in general are really good investors. Um, and uh, those folks are, are uh, you know, I, I hold very near and dear to my heart because, you know, they have helped me expand tremendously, uh, you know, since that time, you know, both, you know, during the exit, post exit, during the fund launch, during the family office launch. And what I found is that those folks, it's not like they're looking for anything in return. You know, they're just, they're just looking to help. Uh, and, and that was something that sincerely I really appreciate. And, you know, for me personally, you know, I think I do this as a part of Lotus, uh, as we're helping out these other companies, but I do it, you know, also outside of Lotus too, with other, you know, folks that are starting up. And, and even though I may not necessarily understand the expert expertise, like, you know, you don't want to come to me to underwrite a real estate deal, but, you know, strategically, right, there, there may be a need uh, to, uh, to, you know, have a sounding board uh, for, you know, you know, whatever the topic du jour is. And if it's not something I know, then usually it's someone that, you know, either I know of a person who does know or not know of a person who may know someone who knows. So, you know, and uh, that's that's something I'm really kind of passionate about. You know, what are is there any commonality of people that have been mentors in your life? that they've done? Is there a common theme? Because I know that's the way that you kind of think, obviously, that the the uh, first order and first principles of, you know, you're sitting down doing enterprise software and you're like, hey, I keep having the same problem over and over, like we could build something for that. Has there then been translated something that you've seen or gained from a personal mentor or investor mentor or whatever, something that they're doing that has like a, a, a common denominator that has been effective or valuable for you? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that all the mentors that I've had personally are very holistic, right? So, you know, yeah, they may have been really super successful career-wise or super successful investment-wise or in private equity, but they're very holistic. Um, they they really have a giving nature. Um, they you know, they want, you know, they desire, um, you know, the the ability to really, you know, give back, you know, because I, I think in many ways, like, like myself, I feel like, you know, we're very blessed uh, with regards to, you know, the success that we've had, right? And so if I can parlay that success uh, down uh, to folks who are needing or in need of that, you know, kind of, you know, the pearls of wisdom, uh, then um, then that's great. And again, it's not like my advice is, is always 100% by, by, by any stretch of the imagination. And neither is theirs, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just having just having kind of that sounding board and someone to run, you know, ideas by, especially given given the track record and their experiences and where, where they can legitimately show up and say, well, yeah, I've been in that situation. You know, this is what I did. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. And it's not really just, it's not saying, hey, you should do this, Jake, or you should do that. It's, it, that's not a, what a good mentor does. It's more about reflect, reflecting about their experience so that you can kind of take that in as inputs and then go, oh, okay, you know, and, and derive your own conclusions, right? And, you know, a lot of times I'll go back to my mentors and like, well, I decided to go down this path and it didn't really work out that well. And they'll say, well, you know, that's okay. You know, you know, I, you know, I was never going to tell you what to do. You know, that's not a, that's not the role of a mentor, you know, but I wouldn't have done it that way. And here's the reasons why. Um, and, you know, here's some additional information. And, and that, that closed loop uh, resolution process is super helpful and it helps you really, you know, really kind of gain, um, you know, a, a higher level of, um, you know, you know, uh, problem solving, you know, type of approach, I think. So you and I are in a mastermind together. I know that you're part of other groups and other masterminds and stuff like that. How has that played into your, you know, call it success or your maturation of being an investor or a combination of that? How did you look out? Because for me, I actually remember listening to a podcast once and somebody was like, oh man, the greatest thing that ever happened was being part of a mastermind. And I was like, what's that? You know, like I'm, I'm trying to Google this and I'm like, what's, or maybe, maybe the Google was around then. I think it was podcast and Google coexisted, but it was like, what's a mastermind. And I kept like looking, I was like, I had no idea what it was, but somebody mentioned that I should definitely do one. And it was huge for them. Yeah. Believe it or not, Jake, I'm actually kind of late to the mastermind game. I seem to be late at everything. Um, so, uh, 
so I had mentors and then, you know, again, I'm just, I just get really, really get really focused on the mission, right? What are we trying to do? You know, how, how are we going to try to do this? When are we trying to get, you know, whatever done. Right. Um, and so it wasn't until uh, probably 2018 that um, really I got, you know, I got called up by another mastermind um, and uh, they're like, Hey, we would really like you to join us. This is, this is a combination of folks that, uh, you know, are extremely, you know, folks that have done extremely well, blah, blah, blah. And I'd heard of groups, uh, not necessarily the term mastermind, but I've heard of groups like this getting together. And I thought, yeah, I'll try it out. And, you know, that, you know, kind of begets, you know, what uh, I see today as just a, a, what a wonderful opportunity, right. To, you know, learn from other folks. Right. And again, I believe in mentorship and all that stuff, but really masterminding is taken to a whole nother level, right. Where, where, uh, you know, then you can get this, this great wealth of information, you know, from multiple different perspectives, and also you can find other folks that, that really need help. And, and, and uh, maybe there's not necessarily a formal mentor mentee kind of a relationship. Um, you know, you're not going to have someone who's going to check in every month or, or what have you, you know, but you can effectively help people, you know, in, you know, tactical problems and sometimes strategic problems as well, especially as you routinely kind of bump into them, you know, from event to event. So uh, I really enjoy it. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm on the road so much is not just work, but because I'm always trying to try to attend all these different, you know, uh, you know mastermind sessions. So that's always, that's always a challenge, but that's what I see as far as, so, you know, to bring it back to Lotus and what you're doing. So, I mean, at least again, this is an outsider's kind of perspective of, of what you're doing, you know, and maybe add some clarity around this is if I miss misspeaking as far as, but you're acquiring SaaS enterprise software companies that have call it, you know, I don't know, one to $10 million in revenue that have had some kind of scale issues. And oftentimes the founder doesn't know how to run uh, enterprise sales team. You know, they're good at their, whatever their problem that they solved, but now actually running a, an effective business is, so they've hit a wall, they've hit that glass ceiling, they've stubbed their toe, whatever that, that metaphor that you want to use is that they're coming up to a problem and maybe they're not even profitable. Like they're losing money. Like, man, I'm pouring a million dollars a year into this stupid company and it's stressing me out. My marriage is failing, like all of those other things. Like I see you guys are, are what this Lotus company is, is you've had 30 successful exits. You've been an operator that's taken something full cycle and to a nine kind of figure, you know, component. So like, you know, diving into that, like what is the ideal problem that you're helping to solve these people? And then how does that translate into kind of that, that mentorship or mastermind component of, of what you've personally been experiencing over the last 10 years, you know, five years? Yeah. So, you know, the analogy that I always like to use is we walk into situations much like those who are, you know, in real estate, right? Where they come across a great location, but the building itself, you know, just has, you know, it just needs a lot of work, right? It's not been renovated for quite some time. You know, the rents are, are low and so forth. And so what we come in is we have a value-added team that comes in, you know, you know, paints the paints the walls, right? You know, gets the landscaping correct, right? You know, you know, maybe there's maybe there's some back end stuff, back office stuff, or what we call it, right? Like electric plumbing, right? That re- need to get redone to make it a real class A building or a class A, you know, real estate uh, investment. And at that point, right, you can really, you know, get that rental income, you know, you know, uh, higher, right, which, you know, generates profits and so forth. And and that's really what we do, right? We do that in the enterprise software world. So we buy companies, you know, you, you got it right, you know, Jake, you know, between one and 10 million of revenue. So these are, these companies usually have, you know, 20 some odd fortune 500 companies, which is really hard to do. Um, you know, if you're a vendor of JP Morgan, the amount of people that have to underwrite your technology is incredible because JP Morgan doesn't want to add another vendor to their list. The only reason why they, if, if they could buy something similar, even if it's more expensive, so with Oracle or IBM, they will totally do that. The only reason why they wouldn't do that is if you're providing some sort of functionality that is just not available in some of the bigger, you know, bigger shops. And so that in and of itself is a, is a big kind of key to us. The fact that it's post revenue, right? It's producing revenue. A lot of times they're actually making some money, just not a lot. Uh, and, you know, you know, they can benefit from our value add. So we come in and, and again, usually the, the, the founder is more of a technologist. They're more of a product guy. That's all they, they want to do is, is really you know, be innovative. Um, and, you know, we come in and we say, hey, look, you don't know, you don't have to worry about the back office anymore. You know, we're going to take 51%. And so we're going to take control, but you're still going to have 49%. 
And we're going to come in, we're going to fix the front office. So in the real estate analogy, right, we're going to do all the, the things that, you know, is are visual to people. We're going to do the stuff on the back office, the stuff that people don't see, like plumbing, electric and all that good stuff. And then we're going to come in and we're going to have a property manager, right, or a CEO come in. And that is really good at what they do. And, and they're going to make sure that this, this building uh, is operating at high efficiency. And that tr- creates a tremendous lot of value. And it's at that point, you know, that we really help uh, that founder see what is possible, why they were really hitting their wall, uh, you know, hitting their head against the wall, um, you know, repeatedly and why, you know, this best practice really works. And it's in that mentorship that they start to see, you know, not always, right, but they start to see that hey, this is what I was doing wrong uh, before. Uh, and, you know, they start to learn. And so the whole goal is that when we do have a, ultimately an exit, because when we buy companies, we typically buy companies, we pay companies, uh, we, we pay companies between one and two times revenue. But when we go to sell them, it's usually between five to eight times revenue. Uh, but, you know, ironically, uh, we're about to, to actually go uh, IPO with uh, with one of our portfolio companies. And this might be a, we believe, a strategy, you know, going forward with Fund3, you know, they're getting like 15 times, you know, revenue. And so you can see the, the huge value. So if you bought something for even two times revenue and you're selling for 15, right? That's, that's seven, you know, seven and a half times the return, um, in a fairly short order. In fact, uh, the company that we uh, actually invested in, um, in February uh, is about to go IPO, uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so, uh, and that's, by the way, that's a very short period of time, but, uh, uh, but we do all this stuff in an actually very tax efficient manner too, uh, because, we leverage a program called QSBS, uh, which, uh, you know, you know, again, talk to your, your tax professional. Uh, but, uh, if we hold these assets, uh, for, you know, you know, call it five years, then actually there's no capital gain. So it's kind of like the equivalent, like a, you know, a 1031 exchange, uh, in, in many ways, even though you actually get the cash uh, back. Uh, but basically what that means is that federally speaking, there's no federal uh, capital gains, which is really nice incentive you know, for our investments. But in the meantime, we, we disperse, uh, we, uh, we do a dividend, uh, from, uh, you know, from the underlying companies, uh, it's a, um, you know, it's an 8% PREF that, uh, we target to, to be an 8% preferred return that, that, uh, happens, uh, you know, every quarter. And that's what we target. And then, uh, ultimately, uh, we have a liquidity partner for those who, you know, for whatever reason want to, want to necessarily get, uh, you know, get, get cashed out, uh, every quarter as well, uh, which, which that comes at a 20% discount to NAF, which is kind of, kind of interesting too. But, but, uh, you know, meaning that, you know, when this IPO, for instance, happens, even though there's a seven and a half uh, return, you know, folks can get out for effectively, you know, six, six times return, which is kind of nice, um, because we have an insurance, uh, where we have a, a secondary, um, you know, liquidity provider that, uh, that is backed by insurance companies that, you know, loves these types of uh, assets. Uh, but getting back to the mentorship, the, um, you know, the opportunity for us really is when that founder, you know, uh, when we sell that company, right? So when we have that exit event, not only have they seen all this stuff, uh, but then they themselves become, an, you know, a, a person by which has not only learned a lot, but can actually turn around and actually mentor other people, right? You know, so if they, you know, a lot of this, like, like once you, once you sell your company, you know, it's like you want, you still want to, you still want to be in the game, right? Uh, and so uh, not everyone, but, but a lot of folks. And so a lot of times, what I want to do is create a system of, you know, of basically incubating mentors, right, to come back to the mothership and actually do this for other folks. So if you were a founder that really got focused on their product, you know, and then saw this great stuff and you were able to learn and, and really, you know, incorporate that, then, you know, come back and, and help, you know, the next, you know, founder, you know, kind of do it. And that's really, you know, gives us scale and, and quite honestly, um, you know, me personally, a lot of uh, energy. So. That's that's really uh, valuable, and I think it's maybe something that you know, you're using as a, a sales pitch to pick up some of these companies. You know, one of the questions, you know, man, I, I feel like VC valuations or company valuations sometimes are absurd. Like there's someone that was just telling me, like, oh, we're, you know, we're valuing our company at forty times, you know, revenue and uh, top line revenue, and I was just like, and you want like capital on that. Like I was like IPO, you know, publicly traded companies aren't getting that, but how, how do you get that with a million, $2 million revenue? Like that seems crazy sauce to me, but how do you find these companies? Like, you know, are they seeking you out? Are you seeking them out? Is it a combination of, of, uh, both of those, because I know from from real estate, we're looking at maybe sometimes market specific. We're looking for a certain deal type or a certain, in the market, we're looking for a good deal. You have a criteria, there's enterprise software, and then that's a pretty big 
broad, ambiguous term to enterprise software, but then how are you finding these deals? And then how are you also able to ink at something that's one to three, you know, times revenue that then grow it to a 10, 15 times kind of revenue number? Yeah. So all of our deals are pretty much off market. You know, they're not represented by a real estate agent or anything like that. And you find you find this from time to time, I believe, in real estate where, you know, the location is awesome, but for whatever reason, you know, the house, you know, just has, you know, just kind of fallen, you know, the building has kind of fallen to the wayside. And, and you know, the real estate market is interesting in that there's a lot of people out there that are, that are very focused on efficiently adding value add to, you know, different types of properties. Uh, I would say, though, that there is very few, if any, firms that are out there that are focused certainly systemically on enterprise software, you know, value add assets, especially in the lower middle market, what we call lower middle market, call it one to 10 times revenue. Um, those, you know, it's, it's, there's just a lot, it's, it's a labor of love. There's a lot of work that needs to happen, right? So if you can just imagine in the real estate world, it's like coming across this place, it's like, oh man, the location's awesome, but man, we got our work kind of, you know, cut out for us with us, you know, just, uh, you know, so, but that's what we do. Um, and so, you know, when, when you think about that, right, uh, these, these things are not in, represented by real estate agent or, you know, or investment bankers, as, as uh, you know, they call it uh, in the industry, you know, and so they certainly find us, um, but we also hunt for those opportunities, too. So so we have, you know, two people that are full time dedicated um, at, you know, looking at certain areas uh, within the space that we know extremely well, and, and those opportunities do exist. And the third way that we do it is is we actually have a number of investors who are actually executives, people that I've actually known for for quite some time, uh, executives within strategic uh, customers, Fortune 500 companies, you know, or strategic um, you know enterprise software companies like IBM, Oracle, so forth. And those those employees, you know, those investors who are also employees you know, or retired, um, they come to us every quarter. And the goal um, is to basically put together a technical advisory uh, com- committee uh, that helps us underwrite uh, deals uh, for you know specific you know for, you know specific prospects that we're looking at uh, from the perspective of you know you know is this is this a good product you know would you buy it um, you know mis- you know potential customer would you would you partner you know with with this company you know big you know software company. Um, and that's really good from an underwriting basis. It, it, it helps to establish a checks and balance between what we think and what really what the market thinks. Um, but those people also generate a lot of deals because they, of course, run across companies that are too small uh, to buy, you know, the product from or too small to really partner up with. And so uh, we have a tremendous amount of deal flow. And one of the things that, that I'm also very passionate about is people don't understand a lot of times what's really happening um, in, in the enterprise software world. You know, the big software companies out there, you know, you know, they really don't innovate, um, you know, internally. They innovate through acquisition. Um, and so, you know, like a Salesforce or, or an Oracle, like if, you know, they'll come across a smaller company and they'll buy it. But that company has to be a certain size. They don't buy typically very small companies and certainly not companies that are between one and 10 million in revenue. They'll typically buy companies that are 20, 50, 100 million in revenue, you know, because again, the people that are underwriting that deal for those large software companies, it has to be a certain size. But here's the issue. Thanks to the Great Recession, the, 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 the capital that has traditionally been deployed in the space has been going way, way upstream, uh, meaning that, you know, like, for instance, when I started my first company, I walked into a bank and I'm pretty sure they took my pulse uh, and they gave me 50 grand. And they said, hey, kid, don't don't spend this all in one place. Right. And I was a part of the SBA program. And, but I really I legitimately I think I filled out like I signed a couple of pages and that was it. That really doesn't happen today. If you, if anyone's tried to get an SBA loan, I mean, it's pretty much, you know, that in a proctology exam. And I think I would rather prefer the proctology exam. So, you know, it's it's one of these things where, and it's because there's so there's so much rules and regulations. And I understand, you know, why some of that stuff exists, you know, but you know, it's just harder to gain access to that private capital. What, what the issue is that if that private capital doesn't isn't easily accessible, you know, to this lower middle market space. Then, then you know it's really hard for companies to grow into that twenty million dollar, fifty million dollar, hundred million dollar revenue space, which means that the large software companies, you know, from an innovation perspective, are going to become less and less efficient at innovating. And so, I personally think that there, there's, you know, at least in the enterprise software world, potentially a very large innovation crisis kind of brewing uh, because, you know, and again, hopefully we meet that marker, right? We fill that gap, so that's not the case, you know. But at the end of the day, it's it's something that I'm really passionate about because. There's a lot of great products out there. You know, they just need the capital 
They need to know, they need the value add back office, front office. And to some degree, they need the leadership. And then, you know, then it'll just kind of take care of itself. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, that's what we do and why we're passionate about it. No, that's, I, I, I pick that up every time I'm around you and hear you kind of talk and, and exactly what you said is, you know, there's a lot of translation between what you do and kind of real estate, the same. And I know that you, and I, I appreciate for translating that for the real estate folks that don't necessarily understand the private equity world or family office or enterprise software and how to translate that to something that they would understand. I think you're, you're onto something that is, is, you know, very, very unique, very special. I think it taps into, you know, not only your, your passion, of experience, but also, like you said, helping these other people. And there's, you know, it's, it's not altruistic. There's also, you know, profits to be, uh, you know, uh, realized, but I think it's across the board. You're also taking these people that maybe from a CTO, call it a quasi CTO position, started solving a problem, but most people don't know how to run businesses. It's it's a challenge running a sales team is its entire own you know component like you said back office putting plumbing in front office redoing the lobby you know a lot of those things have significant value upgrades or for a plumbing you can't get you know through the pipeline unless it's big enough capacity and be if you don't have that if you got one person's heading the company that's also trying to be the head salesperson. It's also trying to serve this, like, you know, like you can see where there's all kinds of inefficiencies in a company that maybe is doing one, two, three, four, five million dollars and why they would fall down flat. Absolutely. Yep, definitely. Well, uh, I, I'd like to, um, you know, give people a, an opportunity to, to reach out to you if you're open to that. Maybe they have a company. Maybe they are a company that is coming and experiencing some of these problems. Absolutely. You know, maybe, you know, um, you know, it's, it's technical people, family office, they've had their exit, they sold their manufacturing company, and they want to get and reach and connect with you some of your family office support stuff. The way that you've systematically approached things is what I find a lot of value in you've created the system, your 300 page, you know, manifesto of investing. I find a tremendous amount of value in that. So where can people find you? Where's the best way for them? And maybe there's different channels for the different things that they potentially could, could reach out to you on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Jake, feel free to share uh, my, my information, my email, uh, my, my phone number. I'm happy to, to help out, uh, answer any questions, mentor uh, folks uh, who, uh, you know, who are in need of help and, you know, answer any kind of questions. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, you have my information. Maybe we could flash it on the screen here. Um, or, or what have you, I'm happy to, uh, to be that point person for sure. So awesome. Well, I appreciate that Christian. It, uh, it again, it was, uh, a fast, uh, you know, time period for me. I think I could probably dive in for, for many, many hours. As far as getting into the <laughs> Absolutely. I could talk to you, Jake, for hours or exactly. days. <laughs> so, um, I, I really appreciate that and, 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 uh, look forward to our, our next time. Uh, breaking some bread. Uh, actually, I, I was mentioning Scott Ryan, uh, another person. He was just like saying, "Man, Christian is such a workhorse." They're like, "He's that the <laughs> the components of that your principles that you started your company off of working twenty four hours a day with thirteen people out of a house or fourteen people out of a house. You you live in California. You're thinking about moving to Texas." And he was like, "You can't move to Texas." Because I need a two-hour head start on my day because you're going to kill me with how much work you actually do. So uh, maybe we'll continue this on in a, a round two conversation Absolutely. at some Absolutely. point to dive into work <laughs> ethic and other things that you have uh, untapped in, in your past. That sounds great. That sounds great. I look forward to it. Cheers. Take care, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. 
for those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.